Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, first off, I uh, th- I feel duty-bound to announce to you that uh, the previously scheduled crossover episode between this broadcast and Family Guy has uh, been indefinitely postponed. Apparently, nobody wanted it enough. And speaking of Nice Corp, news of Nice Corp, nice people doing nice things. A former newspaper editor whose emails led to the exposure of widespread phone hacking. No, really? At Rupert Murdoch's now-defunct British tabloid, The News of the World, he, that former editor, pleaded guilty this week to illegally listening to people's recorded conversations on their voicemail. Ian Edmondson is the eighth person. It's just some bad, you know, just some bad apples from what was once Britain's biggest-selling paper, owned by Rupert Murdoch, to have been convicted of being involved in hacking celebrities' phones, uh, not just celebrities, ordinary people like the missing schoolgirl Millie Dowler. Edmondson had previously denied any wrongdoing. Now he admitted conspiring with colleagues to illegally access voicemails. Victims he was linked to included Jude Law and Sienna Miller and Paul McCartney. Paul! He'll be sentenced at a later date. Phone hacking was first uncovered at the paper way back in 2006, but Murdoch's British newspaper arm, News International, said the practice was limited to its ex-royal editor, Clive Goodman, and private detective Glenn Mulcair, who were both later jailed after admitting hacking. However, the discovery of three emails sent from Mulcair to Edmondson, then the paper's associate editor at the end of 2010, sparked a massive new police investigation into criminal activity at a newspaper owned by Rupert Murdoch. How could that happen? The emails dating from 2006 provided instructions on how to hack the phones of the then-deputy prime minister, a government minister, and the son of Queen Elizabeth's cousin, person referred to in British parlance as a minor royal. I, the story is great just to be able to say a minor royal. Edmondson was fired in early 2011, the emails were handed over to police who slowly uncovered a huge scandal that shook the British establishment and ultimately led Murdoch to closing the newspaper. Well, that'll fix it. In addition to Edmondson, the former editor of the News of the World, Andy Colson and Clive Goodman, the former Royals editor, three other senior editors and another reporter have pleaded guilty to hacking crimes. The former chief executive of the corporation, News International, Rebecca Brooks, was acquitted because, you know, the chief of the organization doesn't know what's going on. And this week, the new incarnation of News Corp's British newspaper arm, News UK, dropped its claim to be reimbursed for the multi-million dollar legal bills it amassed in defending Brooks and the convicted members of its staff. I guess they got a new business model. Nice, Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Hello, welcome to the show. There's a weapon at your door and it's pointed at your eye socket. Double gangers are they? Drone is a missile to your home and the missile's got your name on it. Double gangers are they? It's a rocket from the tomb and the rocket's got your name on it. Double gangers are they? There's a bucket in your room and the bucket's got your vibe in it. Double gangers are they? Sick. We threw a bomb in your hair, so quit shaking it out. 
from Santa Monica, California, home of the world's first, or at least this area's first, vegan Oktoberfest. Think of it. I'm Harry Shearer. You can stop thinking of it now. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. What about our old friend formaldehyde? We haven't heard about it lately. Well, Chinese-made flooring's got some. Chinese-made flooring sold in North America has high levels of formaldehyde. As a matter of fact, it's a known carcinogen. You know it. According to tests done by the Hardwood, Plywood, and Veneer Association. Boy, I want to go to their meetings more often. We went into a retail store and grabbed a sample, tested it, and six out of eight flunked, says Kip Howlett, president of the Industry Association, represents Canadian and American flooring manufacturers. They wouldn't want to put the kibosh, uh, kibosh on Canadian and uh, Chinese, would they? When Howlett started testing these floors five years ago, the levels of formaldehyde were so high, he says some were two to three times over the line. And there is no line. It was like the emissions that we used to see 30 years ago, he says. And by that, he means in Canadian and American products. Too much formaldehyde can cause upper throat and nasal cancers, as well as leukemia. California has tough labeling and emission rules to control formaldehyde emissions from composite wood products, including floors. The U.S. EPA is expected to soon be putting out proposed rules to regulate the chemical nationally. Never too late. Formaldehyde's use in flooring is as a cheap glue in the making of laminate and engineered wood floors. Quote, if you jack up the amount of resin, it allows you to basically take your production rate on your press and increase it by 50%, Howlett says. So instead of making a million panels, you make a million and a half panels. And you'll make some people sick. I, for one, welcome our new Chinese overlords and their formaldehyde. You ladies and gentlemen, it's not just nuclear waste. It's uh, all kinds of waste we don't know how to get rid of. It almost makes you think we're like three-year-olds, and when we're through with stuff, we just you know throw it to one side and figure somebody else will pick it up. In Texas, as in most states, all air emissions from oil and gas waste are among the least regulated, least monitored, and least understood components of the extraction and production cycle, according to Scientific American. Although the wastewater and sludge can contain the same chemicals used in hydraulic fracking, chemicals known to affect human health, little has been done to measure waste emissions or to determine their possible impact on nearby residents. Gap can be traced to decisions Congress and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency made decades ago when oil and gas producers lobbied hard to get most of their waste exempted from federal hazardous waste regulations. I wonder how they accomplished that. Probably just persuasive palaver. In 1988, they did succeed, even though a 1987 EPA study concluded that 23% of the waste samples the agency had collected contained one or more toxic compounds at levels 100 times higher than safe for humans. The EPA estimated without the exemption, 10 to 70% of oil and gas waste could be considered hazardous. Well, can you get a bigger range? Call Amana. Still, the report recommended granting the exemption. The expense of disposing of so much hazardous waste would slow oil and gas production in the UN, United States, the author said, and there weren't enough hazardous waste facilities to handle that much waste. Well, if you don't have enough facilities, make more waste. For the industry and for people who live and work near commercial waste facilities, the distinction between hazardous and non-hazardous is critical when it comes to air quality. Pits at hazardous waste sites must be covered Open-air pits are not allowed. The transfer of the waste is done through pipes so emissions don't escape into the air. 
But pits and non-hazardous facilities, or those defined as such, allow chemicals in the waste to evaporate directly into the atmosphere. States decide how and where facilities are built and what, if any, monitoring systems they must have. An, an EPA review of oil and gas waste regulations in 27 states, including Texas, Pennsylvania, and Colorado, where they're fracking like crazy, I mean like sane, found that none had rules requiring regular air monitoring at commercial solid waste facilities. An assistant professor of environmental law at the University of South Carolina who studies waste rules, Nathan Richardson, said most states, including Texas, focus on safeguarding ground and surface water. None of it that I remember has to do with air, he said. Well, they don't breathe air in Texas, do they? Not anymore. Not since the guy with the thing. The environmental crimes prosecutor for the Texas Environmental Enforcement Task Force, Patricia Robertson, has been frustrated for years because the federal exemption makes it almost impossible to prosecute waste facilities for anything more serious than dust or foul odors. Those are considered nuisances under Texas law. Just just the way we the way we do with our waste. That's who we are. Kind of you, you kind of draw that conclusion after a while. And what the frack? Now it's sand. Fracking has a new boom. And it's sand. The all uh, advent of hydraulic fracking has already sparked a new gold rush for shale, gas, and oil. Now the new mining technique is creating a rush for sand. Developers in South Dakota and Texas are racing to build new sand mines because sand is a key ingredient in the fracking process and demand has surged. They use water, chemicals, and sand to break open the uh, seams in shale rock to bring out the gas. So they need more sand. Frackers are expected to use nearly 200 million tons of sand this year, a third more than 2013. Every time they establish a new well, the sand is mixed with water, acid, and other chemicals and blasted down. The rising demand for sand is led by the increase in fracking, but it's also been compounded by an increase in the amount of sand used in each individual well. It takes about 1,800 tons of sand to frack a single site, Companies experimenting with more have found wells are up to 30% more productive when they're blasted with extra sand. Now with extra sand. Around a fifth of onshore wells are now fracked with extra sand. The method could be used in about 80% of all new shale wells. Soon, sand prices have started climbing. Demand may outstrip supply this year. It's likely The prices are likely to rise even more amid growing concerns about the environmental impact of sand mining. Really? Texas and North Dakota may be more lenient towards the practice. They're the direct beneficiaries of fracking, but Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Illinois have seen a public backlash over traffic, dust, and air pollution caused by the dozens of new sand mines that have opened up in the last four years. These these states produce a high-grade sand known as Northern White, which is favored for fracking, because its round crystal can withstand extremely high heat and pressure. Hey, don't blame us if you got the good sand. We got to go get it. What the frack? And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr.,
Well, there were three candidate cities for the 2022 Olympic Winter Games until this past Wednesday. And now there are just two. Oslo, Norway withdrew its candidacy after its parliament decided not to grant the financial guarantee required for final formal submission to the International Olympic Committee by uh, next January. This now leaves just Almaty in Kazakhstan and China's Beijing left as contenders. The parliamentary decision reflected public opinion in Norway, as well as a reluctance to commit a guarantee of some $5.4 billion. The Norwegian decision echoed signals earlier this year that hosting an Olympic Winter Games is an exorbitant undertaking. Even in well-off Europe, three applicant cities canceled their bids. Stockholm, Krakow in Poland, and Lviv, Ukraine. Moreover, 12 European cities, including Sarajevo, and a consortium of three cities in the U.S. had expressed interest in bidding for the 2022 Olympic Winter Games, but had backed out in face of the spiraling costs of being the host. Cancellation caused by high costs of hosting an Olympic Winter Games is hardly new. In the U.S., a group of promoters won IOC approval in May 1970 for Denver, but when a Colorado state audit revealed that the financing was precarious and might leave the state with a sizable debt. Taxpayer disapproval led to a referendum held in November 72. The result, 60% of voters favoring outlawing the use of state money to fund the games. Without Colorado state funding, there would be no federal funding and hence no winter games. In Denver, the 76 games were awarded to Innsbruck, Austria. The risk of cost overrun for winter games is significant. As the final figures for past games show, according to numbers compiled by the Said Business School at the University of Oxford, the cost overrun for the 1994 Winter Games in Lillehammer was 347%, second only to the all-time loser, the 1980 Winter Games in Lake Placid, New York, 502% over budget. Oslo's mayor, Fabian Stang, remarked in a primetime TV interview that the IOC is out of touch with reality in demanding extraordinarily, extraordinarily, extraordinary privileges for its members during a winter game, including drinks with the king, paid for by the royal family. This was if it was going to be in Oslo. Dedicated Olympic lanes on all roads trafficked by IOC vehicles. That worked well in London. They were empty because the IOC officials were swanning about in Park Lane hotels, not going out to the Olympics. Traffic lights programmed to prioritize Olympic traffic. Special airport entrance for Olympic committee members. Round-the-clock access to high-quality food and drink. And bars at hotels housing IOC members open beyond normal hours. Would you like to host the Olympic Winter Games? Apply now. The Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one, as well as an open bar every day. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let us try news of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, whose motto since their founding 
has been, let us try. One day they'll change it to let us succeed, but, you know, that's for the future. The Army Corps of Engineers said this week it will not hold a public hearing on a proposed coal export terminal in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, southeast of New Orleans, a setback for residents there who've been clamoring in opposition to the project. Yes, coal export terminal. We got too much coal. Corps officials said a hearing is not required for the agency to decide whether to award a permit for the 600-acre site. Quote, the purpose of a public hearing is to provide a venue for collecting new information that would improve the Corps' ability to make a permit decision for a proposed project, says the chief of the New Orleans District Regulatory Branch. Still quoting, based on a thorough review of the numerous comments received, we do not believe that a public hearing for the proposed project would result in the collection of information related to our regulatory authority that is not already under consideration, unquote. So, we don't think you're going to tell us anything new, so we don't have to hear you, basically. Those would be my words describing their words. The decision comes just weeks after the City Council of Gretna and the Jefferson Parish Council, the county council, passed resolutions asking the court to hold a public hearing on the project's effect on coastal restoration efforts. Plaquemines Parish is part of the boot of Louisiana that is fast disappearing because of uh, wetlands loss as well as sea level rise. Corps officials said they sought public input when uh, the application for the federal permit for the terminal was originally filed in March 2012, and they evaluated all information that was submitted. Every comment received is given full consideration and evaluation to ensure the Corps is evaluating a proposed project's permit application to the best extent possible, said Mayor. Environmental advocates point to two new developments since the application, a study on the possible effects of the terminal on a sediment diversion project, which is designed to try to rebuild the wetlands that are being lost, has been completed, and the coal export project has expanded. How does the Corps know they've heard all the concerns without holding a public hearing, said one resident? Because they know. Let them try. News of the Army Corps of Engineers. And now... Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to say that uh, some of the listening audience is responding to the sows of the week. Not every week. Can't do that. That would be wrong. Uh, Responding, I say, by heightened sensitivity to hearing people beginning answers to questions with the word so, as if they're concluding or continuing something. Good on you, mate. Uh, This week, from Democracy Now! on Pacifica Radio, a festival of sows for your listening pleasure. Can you talk about what you've learned about the so-called Khorasan Group? So the Khorasan Group is a group which first came up in the media around September 13th. And talk about, well, for example, where the Khorasan Group got its name. So the Khorasan Group... The name itself is, does not denote any group within Syria that anyone has familiar with or has heard of before. That was Barbara Starr of CNN. Your response? So, in the days leading up to the attack, this, uh, several anonymous sources suggested that an attack was imminent. Well, explain what you mean, negated right after the strikes began, right after the justification, the justification worked. 
Right. So after the strikes happened and there were statements saying that people were killed and the group had been scattered, James Comey and many others within the U.S. establishment started saying that, well, you know, we said the strikes are imminence from this group, but what does imminence really mean? Uh, your response to that piece? Right. So essentially, the administration will seek uh, out reporters who are pliant and willing to work with them to leak stories like this. Can you explain who's written this letter and who it was sent to? So there was an open letter published to the leader of the Islamic State, uh, Abu Bakr Baghdadi. This is Le Show, and now, news of the warm, won't you? I think you will. And that's just me, but... Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Why did Australia have such a hot year last year? Two guesses. Scientists are fond of saying it's difficult to pin the blame for any one climate event onto climate change. They've just made an exception by reporting that many things that happened in Australia in 2013 bore the signature of man-made climate change. In that one year, Australia recorded its hottest day ever, its hottest month ever, its hottest summer, its hottest spring, and its hottest year overall. And in a special edition of the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society examining extreme events around the world during last year, a series of papers 
home in on the Australian heat waves and identify a human influence. Quote, we often talk about the fingerprint of human-caused climate change when we look at extreme weather patterns, says David Carley, professor of meteorology at the University of Melbourne. This research across four different papers goes well beyond that. He continues, if we were climate detectives in Australia's hottest year on record, wasn't just a smudged fingerprint at the scene of the crime. It was a clear and unequivocal handprint showing the impact of human-caused global warning. Warming. Warning. Warming. In ge- unquote. In general, the world's meteorologists have found nothing unequivocal to suggest that global warming caused California drought or extreme snow in the Spanish Pyrenees, but they did find that global warming doubled the chance of severe heat waves in Australia making extreme summer temperatures five times more likely, increasing the chance of drought conditions sevenfold, and making hot temperatures in spring 30 times more probable. They reckoned that the record hot year of 2013 would have been virtually impossible. There's your weasel word. Virtually impossible without global warming. As a conservative calculation, the science showed that the heat of 2013 was made 2,000 times more likely by global warming. Same time, of course, Australia's Prime Minister Tony Abbott stayed away from the recent United Nations Climate Change Summit in New York. It was too hot for him. No, it was. That's not why. With every year that passes, we're getting farther away from averting a human-caused climate disaster. That's the key message in this year's Low Carbon Economy Index, a report released, no, not by the United Nations, not by uh, environmentalists, by the accounting firm of PricewaterhouseCoopers. The report highlights an unmistakable trend, as they say. The world's major economies are increasingly failing to do what's needed to limit global warming to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. That's the target agreed to by countries attending the last UN climate summit. It represents an effort to avoid some of the most disastrous consequences of runaway warming, including food security threats, coastal inundation, extreme weather events, and widespread species extinction. Oh. To curtail climate change, individual countries have made a variety of pledges to reduce their share of emissions. Taken together, these promises simply aren't enough. According to the Price Waterhouse Coopers report, quote, the gap between what we're doing and what we need to do has again grown for the sixth year running. The report adds that at current rates, we're headed towards 7.2 degrees of warming by the end of the century, double the agreed-upon rate. Hey, double is good, right? Current changes in the ocean around Antarctica are disturbingly close to conditions 14,000 years ago, you remember then, that research shows may have led to the rapid melting of Antarctic ice and an abrupt 10 to 13 foot rise in global sea level. That's new research. Published in Nature Communications found that in the past, when ocean temperatures around Antarctica became more layered, a warm layer of water below a cold surface layer, ice sheets and glaciers melted much faster than when the cool and warm layers Mixed. This defined layering of temperatures exactly is what is happening now around the Antarctic. Spooky. The reasons for the layering is that global warming in parts of Antarctica is causing land-based ice to melt, adding massive amounts of fresh water to the ocean surface, says researcher Professor Matthew England, an author of the paper. At the same time as the surface is cooling, the deeper ocean is warming, which has already accelerated the decline of glaciers. It appears global warming is replicating conditions that in the past triggered significant shifts in the stability of the Antarctic ice sheet. Unquote. The modeling shows the last time this occurred, 14,000 years ago, the Antarctic alone contributed 3 to 4 meters to global sea level in just a few centuries. 
few centuries, I got that on me. The results demonstrate that while Antarctic ice sheets are remote, they may play a far bigger role in driving past and future sea level rise than we previously expected, says another researcher on the project. And solar power will reach commercial takeoff within a decade and could displace fossil fuels to become the world's biggest source of electricity by 2050. Not according to PricewaterhouseCoopers, according to the International Energy Agency. The IEA said the cost of photovoltaic panels will continue to plummet, falling by a further 60% for households and 70% for power companies even after the dramatic gains of the recent years. Solar has already achieved socket parity, <laughs> socket parity for consumers in a string of countries, including Australia, Germany, Italy, and Holland, chiefly due to a fall in the price of solar cells. The agency expects prices to reach $30 a watt by 2050. It's already down to 80 cents. Sorry, 30 cents a watt by 2050. It's already down to 80 cents a watt. With enough investment, though what increasingly matters is the rapid fall in soft costs mm-hmm. for installation as solar goes mainstream. The gains will happen just as carbon pricing pushes up costs for fossil fuels, creating a scissor action in the global energy market. The takeoff is around 2025 to 2030. By then, the cost of solar will be $100 per megawatt hour and will compete with fuels facing carbon prices of $50 a ton, says the agency, which expects carbon prices to climb as high as $150 by mid-century as world leaders reach deals (laughs) aimed at capping global warming. All right, then. The IEA said the stock of installed solar power worldwide will reach 200 gigawatts next year as China and Japan add vast amounts of new capacity five years earlier than expected, says the agency's director, Maria van der Hoven. Things have changed very rapidly. The pace should then accelerate, reaching a crescendo of 200 gigawatts of extra capacity each year from 2025 onwards. If all comes together, solar will provide 27% of the world's power by 2050. The biggest gains will be in off-grid regions covering almost a billion and a half people, which will leapfrog the 20th century model of grid infrastructure, just as mobile telephones have swept regions with no fixed telephone lines. The best zones for capturing solar rays between latitudes of 15 to 40 degrees on either side of the equator and best at higher elevations. The agency said group of, group, growth of rooftop solar will start to peak once it has saturated power grids and driven down wholesale electricity prices. This assumes there is no major breakthrough in battery storage costs, yet fresh research in U.S. and Japan suggests this, too, could change very fast. Organic flow batteries using quinones abundant in rhubarb may ultimately displace the current generation of high-cost batteries requiring rare metals. Any such shift could lead to total self-sufficiency for households in warm, dry climates, triggering a general stampede away from the grid. Buy rhubarb stock or stocks. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news from outside the bubble. Well, Britain's... Newspaper The Telegraph, which is generally regarded as conservative-leaning, has come out with a series of articles basically quoting high-ranking army officials as casting grave doubts on the success, the probable success, of the 
air attack on the Islamic State. Investigations by the Telegraph suggest that tens of millions of pounds dollars have been raised for IS and Al-Qaeda by wealthy individuals in the Gulf region while its leaders have turned a blind eye to the problem or been complicit in funding certain groups. In a series of exposés, the Telegraph has highlighted the links between a network of Qatari moneymen and terrorist fighters on the ground in Syria and Iraq. A former chief of the general staff of the army, Lord Dannett, says, quote, it is completely unacceptable that some individuals in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere see advantage in channeling large sums of money to the so-called Islamic State, unquote. He called on the government of Britain to insist that Gulf regimes dismantle terror fundraising networks before being allowed to buy further stakes in major UK projects. Qatar, for example, already owns Harrods. In a recent speech, Sir Richard Dearlove, a former head of MI6, which is Britain's version of the CIA, accused Qatar and Saudi Arabia of, quote, at the very least turning a blind eye, unquote, to terror fundraising. Who do they think they are? The Sheik? See the blind Sheik? See what I did there? Quote, for IS to be able to surge into the Sunni areas of Iraq in the way that it has done recently has to be the consequence of substantial and sustained funding, said Sir Richard. Such things simply do not happen spontaneously, unquote. In the first interview he has given, Qatar's emir flatly denied the connection to terrorism. We don't fund extremists, he said. Saudi Arabia, you know, is World Bee headquarters. They behead lots of folks. Talked about this last week. Qatar and Saudi Arabia have ignited a time bomb by funding the global appeal of radical Islam, according to another former British commander. General Jonathan Shaw, who retired as Assistant Chief of the Defense Staff two years ago, told The Telegraph that Qatar and Saudi Arabia were primarily responsible for the rise of the extremist Islam that inspires IS terrorists. The two Gulf states have spent billions of dollars in promoting a militant and proselytizing interpretation of their faith derived from Abdul Wahhab, an 18th century scholar and based on the Salaf, the original followers of the Prophet. The rulers of both countries are now more threatened by their creation than either Britain or America, argued General Shaw, since the Islamic State has vowed to topple the Qatari and Saudi regimes, viewing them as corrupt. This is a time bomb that under the guise of education, Wahhabi Salafism is igniting under the world really, and it is funded by Saudi and Qatari money, and that must stop says General Shaw, and the question then is, does bombing people over there really tackle that? I don't think so. I'd far rather see a much stronger handle on the ideological battle than the physical battle. General Shaw retired from the Army after a 31-year career that saw him lead a platoon of paratroopers in the bloodiest clash of the Falklands War and oversee Britain's withdrawal from Basra in southern Iraq. He believes IS can only be defeated by political and ideological means. Western airstrikes will, in his view, achieve nothing except temporary tactical success. When it comes to waging that ideological struggle, he says Qatar and Saudi Arabia are pivotal. The primary threat of IS is not to us in the West. It's to Saudi Arabia and also to the other Gulf states, he says. Both Saudi Arabia and Qatar are playing small parts in the air campaign, but contributing more, they should be in the forefront, he, this says General Shaw, above all, leading an ideological counter-revolution against IS. The British and American air campaign would not, quote, stop the support of people in Qatar and Saudi Arabia for this kind of activity. 
It's missing the point. It might, if it works, solve the immediate tactical problem. It's not addressing the fundamental problem of Wahhabi Salafism as a culture and a creed which has got out of control and is still the ideological basis of ISIL and which will continue to exist even if we stop their advances in Iraq. He says the government's approach towards IAS was fundamentally mistaken. People are still treating this as a military problem, which is, in my view, to misconceive the problem. My systemic worry, says General Shaw, formerly assistant chief of the British defense staff, is that we are repeating the mistakes that we made in Afghanistan and Iraq, putting the military far too up front and center in our response to the threat without addressing the fundamental political question and the causes. The danger is that yet again we're taking a symptomatic treatment and not a causal one, unquote. And he again joins the people who point out that IS's main focus was on toppling the established regimes of the Middle East, not striking Western targets. He points out IS made their big incursion into Iraq in June. The West did nothing, despite thousands of people being killed. What's changed in the last month? Beheading on TV of Westerners. And that has led us to suddenly change our policy and suddenly launch air attacks. And he, former assistant chief of the British defense staff, now raises the question that I've been thinking about. Now I can tell you, because the general says it. He believes IS might have murdered the hostages in order to provoke a military response from America and Britain, which could then be portrayed as a Christian assault on Islam. What possible advantage is there to IS of bringing us into this campaign? He asks, answer, to unite the Muslim world against the Christian world. We played into their hands. We've done what they wanted us to do. I just have a horrible feeling that we're making things worse. We're entering into this in a way we just don't understand. Unquote. General Jonathan Shaw, former assistant chief of the British defense staff. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And speaking of mistakes, news of AFPAC. Ashraf Ghani, or Ghani, was sworn in this week as the new president of Afghanistan after initialing and signing and maybe abiding by a power-sharing agreement with uh, Abdullah Abdullah, the candidate he defeated in the recent presidential election. Of course, you know there was a long and protracted recount of those votes since the Abdullah supporters and some international observers said that uh, runoff between these two candidates was plagued by massive fraud. So Abdullah, while Ghani is sworn in as president, Abdullah is now getting the new, newly uh, created post of chief executive of Afghanistan. And uh, as soon as Ghani was sworn in, he set to uh, signing the agreement with the United States that will allow the U.S. to continue training Afghanistan's security forces. The longest war in American history, therefore, will last another decade according to the terms of a garrisoning deal for U.S. forces that Ghani signed. So U.S. and NATO troops won't have to withdraw by year's end, and their stay is permitted until the end of 2024 and beyond. By the way, in 2010, Vice President Joe Biden publicly vowed the U.S. would be, quote, totally out of Afghanistan, quote, come hell or high water by 2014. 
unquote. Smells like hell to me. Um, so, yes, now finally, Hamid Karzai has left the presidential palace. Ashraf Ghani is in as president. Abdullah Abdullah is in as chief executive. And by the way, uh, Karzai's parting shot was a speech which attacked the United States, claiming uh, the U.S. didn't really want peace in Afghanistan, that it had another agenda. The uh, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan attacked Karzai's speech, saying it was, quote, very sad, unquote. From Afghanistan Public Radio, where a new administration means half as many pledge drives, or twice as many, we'll see. From the presidential suite that couples only five-star hotel, Jim's five-star resort, Five Star is our middle name. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Flippin' and Flop, the husband brothers. Welcome to another edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Karzai Family Foundation. Family is our middle name. <laughs> Not the bad sweet, uh, my younger brother. Oh, oh, I'm surprised they didn't put you in the ex-presidential suite. <laughs> <laughs> only because they don't have one yet. Yeah, that's right. Democracy in our country can only grow slowly. Mm-hmm. One backroom deal at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, mm-hmm. after ten years, it's... Hard to hang up that green robe. Oh, after ten years, it doesn't need a hanger. It can sit up by itself. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's a relief to no longer be the one everyone looks to for a little uh, bakshish. Oh, indeed. Uh, now we get to learn that it's better to receive than to give. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'll miss some of the perks of office. Mm, of course you will. Uh, like what? Well, the free CompuServe account. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, and the high-speed dial-up internet. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to one of our American supporters, mm-hmm. the electric car. Oh, who gave you that, Elon Musk? No, Mattel. <laughs> <laughs> and you, my brother, uh-huh. what will you miss from our days in the presidential palace. Mm, I think the ability to make one threatening phone call and get my Toyotas delivered on time. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good times. Mm-hmm. Hello, you are on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is James, a longtime ambassador, a first-time caller. Uh, James, this is Mahmoud. Mm. I have a confession to make. Uh. Really? Yes, at our farewell party at your embassy, mm-hmm. I took all the leftover shrimp. Oh, that's fine. Uh, no, that's not what I'm apologizing about. Oh. I wrote the angry post on the embassy Facebook page about your serving frozen shrimp at your party. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, strictly speaking, mm-hmm. it it, uh, it wasn't exactly shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Mr. Ambassador, mm-hmm. you uh, still licking your wounds over my little speech? Uh, well, Mr. Karzai, I still have my job. Uh, unless you're president of Jim's Five Star Resort, I gather that uh, you don't. <laughs> oh, Mr. Ambassador, <laughs> my brother has landed on his feet more often than a ten-legged cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, but you were suggesting in your speech mm-hmm. that uh, 
we didn't want your country to be at peace, uh, that uh, we had our own agenda. Mm -hmm, That's right. Uh, You took good notes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we were trying very hard to get you to sign the agreement to let us leave some troops in your country. Mm -hmm. Why would we do that if uh, if we didn't want peace? Oh, I think he's asking uh, why you would store gasoline and matches side by side if you didn't want to prevent a fire. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was going to be my next question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Ambassador, Mm -hmm. you uh, said my speech made you sad. Mm -hmm. I hope we've cheered you up a little. Oh, just not having to see you every morning cheers me up a little. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. And for all the shrimp. (laughs) By the way, my dear brother, Mm -hmm. I have to say I do think you're wrong. Uh, in what you said about our American friends. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yes, you said they had an agenda. I did. But that would require thinking ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hello, this is Abdullah, first time chief executive, uh, long time caller. Abdullah, Abdullah, <laughs> the man so nice, they... Oh, please. Mahmoud, I've heard that more often than Madonna has heard people say, why can't you sing? Uh, 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 Abdullah, <laughs> congratulations on having the Americans twist the armor of the new president to have you named chief executive of Afghanistan. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Abdullah, do, I do have to ask you, mm-hmm. uh, we have never had a chief executive before. Yes. What made you choose that job title? Oh, oh, simple, Mahmoud. Mm-hmm. I just ask myself, in American companies... Who gets to walk away with all the money? <laughs> <laughs> That's a question so good you don't need the answer. <laughs> so, Abdullah, uh-huh. you signed a power-sharing agreement with the new president, Ashraf Ghani. Mm-hmm. How exactly does that work? Wow, things really have changed. Now mm-hmm. we're asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I understand what we signed, which of course was written by the Americans, mm-hmm. so you would really have to have some $500 an hour lawyer tell you what it actually means. <laughs> but I think whenever a President Ghani exercises some power, I get to call the 24-hour sharing hotline. Mm. And that's answered by... As far as I know, the round-the-clock staff in uh, Bangalore. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to sound like uh, Sarah Palin, but I can see Bangalore from my house. (laughs) So, Abdullah, Uh do you have a question for us? We may have changed location, but not format. (laughs) Well, former President Karzai, Mm -hmm. I just would like to know if you were in my position, having this new title in a government run by an opponent who won an election by fraudulent means, Mm -hmm. how would you handle it? Well, among the first things the new president has said he's going to do is to reopen the investigation into the Kabul Bank, right? Uh, So I understand from the press release he doesn't... So, uh, Abdullah, hmm? please get some high-level people together and start yourself a brand new bank. (laughs) (laughs) After all, Abdullah... Yes. That's where the money is. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Long War Foundation, reminding you the longer the war, 
the writer of the world. Legal help for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Either we'll be in Raiderlands on public radio stations that get funding from our family foundation, or we'll talk to you again on another edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. To learn the secret I have found Free and easy, easy and free That's the way it's got to be I saw the morning covered with care Suddenly my mind said, no despair Free and easy, easy and free That's the way it's got to be Once I was so inclined Take life so seriously Gee, but I'm glad to find There's a brand new baby Throw all your fears and doubts down the drain Learn to see a sky where there's no rain Free and easy, easy and free That's the way it's got to be Gentlemen, the apologies of the week. So sorry. Michael Phelps, the winningest athlete in Olympic history, is facing DUI charges for the second time after being arrested in his hometown of Baltimore. The, change, the charges put a damper on Phelps's planned comeback. I understand the severity of my actions and take full responsibility, he said in a statement. I know these words may not mean much right now, but I'm deeply sorry to everyone I've let down. Let us know when they mean something, Michael. Montreal's suicide hotline has apologized to a man who wanted, waited almost a half an hour to get through to someone for help. John, his name is being protected, said it took six phone calls to get through to someone on Suicide Action Montreal's overnight hotline. After repeated attempts, he said he finally connected with someone at 5.10 a.m. 
Faced with complaints, a top University of New Mexico official apologized to the campus community this week for some of the more risque elements of the ongoing Celebrate Sex Week at UNM. Vice President for Student Affairs Eliseo Cheo Torres said that while the Women's Resource Center and the Graduate and Professional Students Association had good intentions, the initiative did not have clear oversight or close enough supervision to prevent the inclusion of topics that are sensational and controversial. For that, UNM apologizes. What's wrong with the sexy mama? Dateline Quito, Ecuador. Ecuador apologized to an indigenous community this week for authorizing oil drilling on ancestral land without their permission. The apology to the Sarayaku committee, community came two years after the Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruled that the OPEC nation had violated the tribe's right to be consulted on oil concessions granted for their land. Ecuador paid $1.3 million to the community, which lives in the southeastern jungle region, as a result of the court's decision, we offer a public apology for the violation of indigenous property, the right to consultation, said Justice Minister Lady Zuniga. Remember that band? Managing director of the British department store chain John Lewis, Andy Street apologized unreservedly for criticizing France when he said this week that the country is finished and that UK investors should get out quickly. So I guess we can call them French fries again? In Turkey, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan demanded and received an apology from Joe Biden over comments in which Biden said the Turkish leader had admitted Turkey had made mistakes by allowing foreign fighters to cross into Syria. Erdogan ever denied saying that and told reporters that Biden will be history for me if he's indeed used such expressions. The White House said Biden spoke to Erdogan on Saturday to clarify comments and said Biden apologized for any implication that Turkey or any other allies had intentionally supplied or helped in the growth of the IS group or other extremists in Syria. The Boston Herald ran an editorial cartoon by Jerry Holbert. The White House intruder from this week is in the bathtub while the president is brushing his teeth. And the intruder says, have you tried the new watermelon flavor toothpaste? Holbert said he used the watermelon flavor because he found kids Colgate watermelon flavor toothpaste in his bathroom at home. I want to apologize to anyone I offended who was hurt by the cartoon. Holbert said it was certainly absolutely not my intention. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan around the world through facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com. On the Mighty 104 Berlin. Did I mention that already? Hello, Berlin. And available as a free podcast at www.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes for free. 
And it'd be just like listening to the British generals, if you'd agree to join with me then. All right, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for the program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and the way to get yourself a Cars I Talk t-shirt. What a souvenir of a wonderful era. All available at harryshare.com. To celebrate America's longest war, America's longest wearing t-shirts? Not really. And me, I am on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the Vegan Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest.